And if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to continue on our study of First Thess. And you know, it's been such an incredible study uh, for me personally. Um, I think in the first week I opened it and I mentioned it's Katie's favorite New Testament book and it has quickly um, begun to challenge my favorite New Testament book, um, partly because um, I've now taught three of the four messages, which has forced me to um, dive into it, even at deeper levels than I ever have before. And it's just been a rich rich study and this morning in the prep time was no exception. So with that, um, let me read a couple verses. We'll pray and we'll dive in. Paul, continuing in his writing, said, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word for this morning for the chance to gather together in this place to hear from you. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us what you have for us this morning through this study in Jesus' name. Amen. I know in the New King James it says, Finally, then. But a better rendering of that beginning part of that first verse of chapter 4 is furthermore or in addition. It's not finally let me give you some closing words, but let me continue on in what I've already been sharing with you, but I'm going to become more specific. Paul in all of his epistles always started more doctrinal or theological in nature in the opening chapters, only to move to practical life application in the latter chapters of each epistle. And over these last two chapters of 1 Thessalonians, he's going to dive into some very practical things. If we were to read that first verse in the original text, it would say something like, Furthermore, brothers, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that just as you have been walking and have received from us, you ought to continue to walk and please God more and more. The challenge is for us to always be on track with where we're at in our walk with the Lord, in our relationship with Him, 
he uses two words there that you ought to be abounding more and more in your walk and in pleasing God. Now, if you've been around the Bible at all, you know the word walk is synonymous with your life in Christ. It's your manner of living. It's how you move throughout your day, moment to moment, in Christ. And he's saying we need to be abounding in our walk with the Lord, drawing closer and closer to Him, and reflecting Him more and more, just as the moon reflects the light of the sun at night. Right? You guys know that, right? The moon isn't a light in and of itself. That just as it reflects the light of the sun and illuminates the darkness, so too should we be abounding in our ability to reflect the light of the sun, S-O-N, in a world that's dark, that they might be illuminated to the reality of who God is. It's our responsibility as believers, and in fact, there's no way to be pleasing to God and to have a walk that's pleasing to God apart from that, apart from walking in faith, walking in His Word, and walking with a desire to reflect Jesus in this world. And consider, he says, for you know what commandments we gave you or we taught you. I Actually, as I was reading it, I began to chuckle. Because if you were here in the beginning, you would remember Paul spent a very abbreviated time in Thessalonica. Odds are he wasn't even there for more than a month. And yet, when we reflect back on the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians and just these opening two verses of chapter 4, man, that guy was busy sharing with them about the things of the Lord. I mean, when you look at the content of the whole book of 1 Thessalonians, you will come to understand that he started with the very foundation, which was Jesus and him crucified for our forgiveness and salvation. But, you know, that's enough work to share the truths of that and get people to respond in two to four weeks, right? Remember, he's in a completely Gentile pagan environment, Greco-Roman in nature, debauched, depraved, as bad as it gets. You'd think it'd take two to four weeks just to convince somebody of the reality of Christ, but we know he did so much more. He not only saw them come to salvation, but he taught them what it means to walk with Jesus. 
He taught them about trials and struggles. We're going to find out by the end of this chapter, he also taught them about end times and what is to come. Consider all the work that Paul put in in such a short period of time and how far he brought these individuals along in their faith in Christ. And then after I got a chuckle about that, I felt convicted. Because how hard is it for us to continue to dive into the Word of God and mine the riches of it and grow in our understanding of who He is and the struggle it is for so many of us day to day to not let this book called the Bible gather dust on our coffee tables as a part, as opposed to it becoming the very bread we eat, the very water we drink. These Thessalonians, man, they must have been some of the most incredible sponges ever. Just sat there for a few weeks and just soaked up everything that Paul had to deliver them. And now he's challenging them to take all that he delivered to them and to abound in that and to grow in that and to meditate on that and allow it to change their lives. It's a good challenge for us. In verse 3, he continues on, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this manner, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So, of course, now you know why Pastor Steve got sick. It's a difficult area of scripture in this world we live in today to come and share with you this morning. But let me start with this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you would be set apart, completely separated from this world. That you would be an alien, a sojourner, a foreigner when it comes to the things of this world, recognizing that your citizenship 
though your passport, if you have one, for most of you, would say United States of America, there is a passport as a Christian that trumps that passport because though we live here in an earthly sense, in our citizenship, for my case, is the United States. My citizenship truly is in heaven as a believer. And I am to be here to represent that citizenship completely separated off from the things of this world that I would live unto Christ. Paul wrote in Romans 12 essentially the same thing. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, not extraordinary, not superordinary, just reasonable act of service or worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind that you may prove the perfect and good, acceptable will of God, parenthetically, in your life. It's what we've been called to as believers our sanctification. Now, sanctification is really, in general, comes at us in two parts. There's that part of sanctification that when we're saved, it's a work of God to pick us up and set us apart for Him. And we're sanctified and set apart by God. But there is also a progression of sanctification in our life. Some would call it practical sanctification in that God is working out. We're studying Exodus on Wednesday night. He's working Egypt out of us and replacing it with Christ that we would be growing moment to moment, day to day, in our Christ-likeness. That each day we reflect the sun a little bit more. And God is digging and digging and digging. Now, in this world that Paul is writing this letter into, It's the pagan, Gentile, Greco-Roman world. It was a completely depraved world where all sexual sin, as the Bible would call it, was normalized. The temples they worshipped in had prostitutes. Every man had a wife to take care of his day-to-day things at home and a mistress. And on the side, we'd go to the temple 
and, and participate in worship through prostitution. This was the world that they were living in. And now Paul sweeps in, shares Christ with them. These Gentile believers are set free. And one of the main things that they were confronted with daily was the reality of this sin in front of them. This is why Paul is calling out this particular sin in regards to sanctification, because it would be the one they're confronted with every single moment of their life. My wife and kids and I lived in Vegas for 16 years. Let me tell you, you get a glimpse, just a tiny glimpse, of what it must have been like for these Gentile believers in Las Vegas. When you live in Las Vegas, you have to train yourself not to look at the back of taxi cabs, not to look at billboards, because it is the height of just debauchery, what you'll find on billboards and taxi cabs, let alone if you wind up down on the strip and certainly old parts of the strip. And there's just places that you just don't drive down. I spent quite a few years, three years, working in post-prison ministry. I can pretty much sum up the three big areas that cause people to go to prison. Anger, greed, and sexual sin. With those three, you will cover the largest percentage of people who are imprisoned in America today. And you might say, well, how about the people that are in there for drugs? Greed. They're in there because they're selling it. Why are they selling it? For a profit. It's greed at the expense of others. So today, if I were to go into a prison and preach sanctification, I'm going to call out greed, sexual immorality, and anger as those things that they have to battle with daily so that they might be set apart for Christ. So when we look at this, the bigger call, though, specifically is dealing with sexual immorality here, and we'll talk on that in a moment. The, the bigger picture is this call to be set apart, to be different, to leave the things that are normalized in society and to live to a higher calling. 
Today, there's two words, and many of you have heard me say this before. There's two words that this world has caused to be looked at as the same. It's morality and ethics. Morality, if you'll give me a simple definition, is the study of what is. It's the mores, the morals of society. And because of that, morals are established by the very society that you're living within. Therefore, what we think is moral in America, another culture might not, and vice versa. You see, in missions, we can read stories about missionaries who have gone into cannibalistic areas where they kill and eat other humans. To them, that's moral. To us, we're repulsed. But, but morals are established by what society is willing to accept. Ethics are the study of what should be. And for us as Christians, our ethic comes from the Bible. This is what should be. Morals is what is. And sanctification calls us out of morality in the sense of what is acceptable within culture to the higher understanding of what is biblically ethical when it comes to life and to live beyond what is moral to the standard that's set by the Word of God. Are you with me? And in this world that Paul's writing to, these Gentile believers who probably for the most part participated in the mores of that society, but have now become believers, he's saying, look, that choice to follow Christ comes with change. You can no longer live like the society you live in lives if it violates the truth of the Word of God. And in this society, in Thessalonica, in this Greco-Roman world of Macedonia, increasingly like our world today, the greatest struggle is in this era of sexuality. And so Paul calls it out, saying if you're going to be set apart, you're going to have to battle this one. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That word there for sexual immorality is the word pornea, where we get our word pornography from. But in the biblical sense of the use of that word, it's any sexual sin 
outside of the bonds of marriage, whether that be the use of pornography, whether that be fornication, whether that be adultery. It is any sexual sin that uses what God created as good in some way opposite of how he prescribed it to be used, quote-unquote, in society within the confines of marriage. So he says, if you're going to be sanctified, you have to abstain. You have to flee. You have to run away from sexual immorality. And our greatest struggle is everybody, for the most part, in this room would agree with me on that. We need to flee, abstain from sexual immorality. Yet it continues even within the church. I'm not saying this church. I'm not saying not this church. But within the church, it continues to be a problem. And the reason is, is because we know we have to flee it, but we don't know where to run. We don't know where to run. We know we're supposed to abstain. We know we're supposed to flee. We know what's right and wrong. We, in the moment, know that I need to turn away from it. But what do I turn to? What do I run toward? And clearly, the answer... Well... Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, No temptation has overtaken us, but such as is common to man. But with it, God provides a way of escape. But that way of escape means we have to turn to him. It's going down the freeway of temptation which in and of itself is not sin. It's what you do with the temptation that makes it sin or not. So I'm on the highway called temptation, and God has a flashing neon light. Exit here, exit here, exit here. Will you take that thought captive? Will you take that... Exit, will you turn to God? Will you run to his word? Will you put yourself in situations so that you're not tempted, but not put yourself in situations where you are? Do you understand the pattern? Do I understand the pattern perhaps in my life, or do you understand the pattern in your life that leads you to stumble and fall into sin, whether it be sexual immorality or some other sin? What is the pattern? If you don't spend time meditating on what the pattern is, you'll never know how to break the pattern. It's not enough to know. You have to know where to go. 
in uh, biblical self-confrontation, there's a form. It's called Victory Over Failures Worksheet. It starts with, here's my sin. Second column, here's what God says about my sin. Third column, here's what I need to do. Fourth column, here's how I'm going to do it. It's not enough to just agree with God. But when you agree with God, what do you need to do and how are you going to go about it to be set free? To help you to flee and to flee properly. We're called in this area. But again, you could be sitting here saying, Well, I got to tell you, Steve, I don't have a problem in this area. Well, praise the Lord. But you have an area, you have something. If I ask for a show of hands, practically everybody in this room would say, there's this one area in my life I just can't find victory over. I keep falling back into it and falling back into it and falling back into it. I know I'm not supposed to go there. I'm just powerless to break it. You're powerless to break it because you haven't trained yourself to take every thought captive, know what leads you to that place, stop that pattern, turn your eyes toward God and understand where you can go and where you can't go so that you won't fall in that sin. So fill in the blank. In this world, increasingly, it's no different than Thessalonica. Sexual sin is becoming normalized in America. Just turn on the TV. No, don't. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, I, I know for young people, you're like, here we go again. But when I was your age, man, how things have changed in the media. Oh my gosh. The words that I got my mouth washed out with soap for, you guys throw around like they're normal. I'm like getting hit every day by words being assaulted and abused in my ears with words that in my day I'd have got thrown across the room if that word came out of my mouth. And yet, it's normal in today's society. And if you spend any time turning on a TV or going to movies or any form of media, you're assaulted and victimized. Truly, 
they have 150% bought in to sex cells. Period. It is becoming an epidemic that even within the church we have to be careful with. He says that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. In Romans, in the book of Romans, I'm going to turn there real quick. You don't have to. But in Romans 6, verse 19, it says, I speak in human terms because of your weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness' sake. We need to grow in our knowledge of how to possess or how to live out this life in the flesh in a manner and a way that is set apart and that honors God in opposition to the passions of lust that this world has as so prevalent in its morality, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God. Again, calling you back to Romans 12. The first part is to make the choice to be a living sacrifice, to turn my back on the things of this world and live unto God, and to sacrifice even the very quote-unquote freedoms that this world gives me for the sake of living a life that's pleasing to God because of what he's done for me in sending his son. But then he says, and do not be conformed to this world. That's the second part. Don't, don't judge your life by this world. It's a slippery slope. The church today, hear me in this, The church today is in the state it's in because it judges itself and compares itself to the world and says, well, we're better than the world except the world is going to hell in a handbasket and sliding down the slippery slope of depravity, and all the while the church is sliding down the same slope, sitting above the world saying we're better than the world, but one day we wake up and we go, how did we get here? We would see that in our own lives. How many times do we wake up and go, How did I get here? We don't judge ourselves by the things of this world. We don't conform 
our lives to the things of this world. We don't evaluate our life in Christ by the things of this world. We have one standard and one standard only, that's Christ. If we're going to compare ourselves, compare ourselves to Christ. We will quickly understand He's God, we're not. Holy Spirit, help me to change. Right? Are you guys with me? And so, he says, we shouldn't be acting in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. And then he gives four reasons for this. One, that we wouldn't take advantage or defraud a brother in this manner. We are called to love. How do we love and take advantage or defraud a brother through this act, in this case, a sexual sin, or fill in the blank of sin. We, you know, we can't love and injure purposefully. It, it doesn't work. So point one is that we shouldn't take advantage and defraud a brother. Point two, because the Lord is the avenger. Another translation, he's the punisher. Listen. One of the things I tried to teach my kids and have even at times shared with the young people I'm blessed to hang out with, is this, that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Thankfully, we experience the grace of God in a tangible sense in that he sent his son to die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. But don't ever think that because of grace and forgiveness that God changed his mind about sin. He's the same God who said, take disobedient children outside the city and stone them. Now, that meant a perpetual pattern of disobedience, not one act of disobedience. But please understand that God still views that sin the same way today. And you can't rest on the perfect love of God without embracing the perfect justice of God. You can't have one without the other. They are bound together. Perfect love without perfect justice is not perfect love. Any more than perfect justice is not perfect justice without perfect love. They go together. It's the love of God that constrains him 
to hold us as his children to the truth of his word. And through the truth of his word, his perfect love is poured out in that knowing we would fall short, he extends grace through his son. But don't ever think that sin goes unpunished. It must be dealt with. And for us, thankfully, Jesus took the ultimate punishment upon himself. But thirdly, God didn't call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Peter wrote, quoting Leviticus, the Lord saying, Be holy, for I am holy. Holiness or holy is just another word like sanctification that means set apart. That we wouldn't look like this world. And fourthly, he who rejects this does not reject man but God and the testimony of the Holy Spirit in their life. I don't know how it works for you. But I know when I fall short. The Holy Spirit tells me. And when I hear the Holy Spirit tell me, I have a choice to make to agree with God, repent, turn, accept his forgiveness and move in the right direction or reject it. I share with my kids the truth. We share with you guys weekly the truth of God's word. You might go out of here today and say, who does he think he is telling me these things? You're not shaking your hand at me. You're shaking it at God. It's his word. I'm just reading to you his word. This is God's perspective. If we reject the truth that is shared with us through the word, or if you reject truth that God would share with us through a person, we're not rejecting Paul. We're rejecting God. It's his truth. And so the Holy Spirit comes along and testifies to that truth. And now we have a choice. I know you'd find it hard to believe, but there are times where I can be a little difficult. Lori. The Lord gave me a wife who is so gracious that when I don't act like Jesus, she still does. And so my human Holy Spirit works with God's Holy Spirit, and I immediately know I've fallen short. That requires me to acknowledge that and change that. And to reject it is not a rejection of my wife. It's a rejection of God and his truth.
So four reasons why we shouldn't operate in sexual sin, let alone purposely in any sin. Number one, we shouldn't take advantage or defraud a brother. Two, the Lord will be the avenger. Three, God didn't call us to uncleanness or sin, but to holiness. And four, if we reject this teaching, we're not rejecting man but God. Verse 9, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, do not... Um, We urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to live a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. So Paul turns He says, look, you're called to sanctification. One of the things for sanctification is to turn from sin. To turn from whatever sin is prevalent within society, to be set apart, those sins that we might struggle with. Secondly, concerning brotherly love, Paul says, I have no need to write to you For you truly are loving one another. But here's what he says, that you increase more and more. So he gives them some instruction here now in practicality, how to live out brotherly love. One, increase more and more. Two, aspire to leave a quiet life. Three, Mind your own business, and four, to work with your own hands. I wrote down in my Bible, don't settle, don't kettle, don't meddle, and don't be idle. First off, don't settle. It's not enough to be saved. It's not enough to go... I'm okay with the level of loving person I am. Settling is like getting on a downward moving escalator and walking up it. If at some point as you're walking up it, you decide, I'm good with this step, and you stop walking, you're going backwards. Don't settle. Truly, operating in brotherly love fits with if you don't use it, you'll lose it. If you're not actively operating and purposing to operate in brotherly love, you will stop being a loving person. Because the only other place to turn your eyes is yourself. I'm either going to have my eyes looking out in brotherly love or my eyes looking in. 
to myself. And if my eyes get on myself, look out. It's all about me. And there's nothing anybody then could do to satisfy me. So don't settle. Aspire to leave a, lead a quiet life. Don't kettle. I got that as I sat there thinking, what moniker could I use? And I looked over at the stove and there was a teapot. Now, I don't know about you, but that's one of the most annoying sounds when the tea kettle goes off. And there's nothing more annoying than a person who's living out loud and trying to draw attention to themselves. Look, as Christians, we're called to live our faith out loud, but not be a tea kettle where we're doing it for the express purpose of drawing attention to ourselves. Look at me, my faith. Lead a quiet life. Let your actions back up your words. Think about that first. How, is, how am I living my life? I think the quiet life is walking in faith in Jesus and being led by his spirit. But a teapot is just annoying. It just screams out, pay attention to me. Right? We have a cat. Every night we go to bed, close the door, and Lily grabs a mouse, not a real one, and comes to our door and just row, 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 like quiet, row. She's trying to draw attention. She wants in the door nothing more annoying. Don't settle, don't kettle. Mind your own business. Don't meddle. That's not saying we shouldn't be our brother's keeper. That's not saying we shouldn't watch out for our brothers. That's not saying if we see a brother in sin to not go to them and try to restore him. It's not saying that. But how often do we get our nose into other people's business where it doesn't belong. Don't meddle. Desire to simply be used of the Lord and work with your own hands. Don't be idle. Just as we commanded you. Why? First off, it's good for you. But secondly, verse 12, a better reading would be that you may in a seemly manner to the advantage of those who are outside, live a life that draws them to the Lord. That you would walk properly or in a seemly manner to the advantage of those who are outside the faith, that they might be attracted 
to Christ through your life. And that you may lack nothing. What a huge statement that is. That you may lack nothing. We're running short on time, but if you would write in your Bible, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, that's a great parallel passage for that. Let me wrap up the chapter, and we'll dive into this more next week, of course. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. I'm only going to touch briefly on this section because the opening section of chapter 5 is a continuation of this um, of this section that I just read. But clearly what is in mind is this word that we know of in the church as the rapture of the church. Now, when I say rapture, that always brings up a lot of thoughts and a lot of discussion. Let me just say, for the sake of accuracy, that the Bible teaches the rapture of the church. Whether you believe that's at the beginning, midpoint, or end of the tribulation period is not the point of discussion of this text. But simply, this text teaches that there will be a rapture. Now, you're going to say to me, but Steve, the word rapture is not in the Bible. And I'm going to say, you're right. But the word caught up, down in verse 17, is the word harpazo in the Greek, but in the Latin, rapturus, which is where we get our word rapture, which is why that word has come to be applied to this event that is described here in Thessalonians in this fourth chapter. And clearly there had been a concern on behalf of the Thessalonians about, okay, we get it that Jesus is going to come back and the church is going to be raptured, but what about those people that died in Christ beforehand? 
you can almost see that there must have been some question or concern that Timothy brought back to Paul. And so he writes him, hey, I don't want you to be ignorant or concerned. We shared this with you, and here's how it's going to go. There is going to be a day when Jesus comes back for his church with the shout, and that word for shout is a military command. With the shout, the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God, Christ is going to come. And those who are dead in Christ, those who died in faith in Christ, will rise first. And then we who are alive on that day will rise or be caught up, snatched away, violently jerked away, raptured to meet them in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now the point I want to bring out as we close is really down in verse 17 and it's one word. We. Then we who are alive. When you write something and you use the word we, who's included in we? I, me. I'm included in we. If I'm writing and I say we, I'm including myself in whatever it is I'm saying. And when you read that word, it should strike you. Paul thought he'd be included in the group that would be alive in that day and be caught up to meet those who were dead in Christ in the air. We call that living with the imminent return of Jesus on the forefront of our minds. That at any point, Jesus could come back. At any point. Could be right this second. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> but when, this is an important point. If we're, why live a life that's set apart? Why go through the trouble? Well, one, because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ and the great cost that Jesus paid that we might be set free from our sin. But why in this moment? Because at any moment, Jesus could be coming back. Paul lived his life with the imminent return of Jesus on the forefront of everything he did. He was compelled to live the life he lived because at any moment Jesus could return. We're thousands of years later now. <clears throat> Do we live our lives with the imminent return of Jesus on the forefront?
of our minds? Does it motivate us to live lives that are pleasing to Christ? He could come back at any moment. The voice of the archangel, the shout of God, the trumpet of God could blow and Jesus could return. It changes how we live our lives. So in chapter 4, as Paul gets practical, he first calls us to live lives that are set apart. He calls us to love with a brotherly love. He calls us to live lives that don't settle, don't kettle, don't meddle, and that aren't idle. And he calls us to live our life with one eye on the imminent return of Jesus. At any moment, we could be taken up, snatched away, and be in his very presence. But until then, we are to live lives of holiness set apart for him. We're here for 70, gone for eternity. What's more important? Eternity or the here and now? We can sacrifice in the here and now, amen, for the sake of eternity.